These industrialists accumulated their wealth in ways most Americans could understand. They dug up something. They discovered something. They built something. But the financiers backing these industrialists, as Americans were just learning, found their riches in the flow of money itself. Morgan was the most influential of these businessmen. He wasn't the richest. By most counts, John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie were. But that didn't matter. He was commanding in ways none could match. Wherever he sat, he became the head of the table. He was comfortable in his dominion, though never with his fame. He had an aristocrat's disdain for public sentiment and the conviction that his actions were to the country's advantage. No explanations necessary. Roosevelt thought big business was not only inevitable, but essential. He also believed it had to be accountable to the public, and Roosevelt considered himself to be the public. Each presumed he could use his authority to determine the nation's course. Each expected deference from the other along the way. Morgan and Roosevelt both knew privilege and loss, though they would have balked if anyone had pointed out their similarities. The president aimed to guarantee that as American prosperity took hold, the laws applied to the country's elite and its poor alike. He wanted to assert the primacy of government over business. The financier thought that was needless, even dangerous. The country's strength accrued from capital, trade, economic efficiency. These were the provinces of businessmen, and Morgan, their unofficial ruler. He required order and stability, along with political predictability to assure America's growth and assent to global power. To Morgan, the giant railroad and steel companies he was constructing would allow the country to compete in the world market and its citizens to benefit. The pace and scale of these operations shouldn't be cause for worry or resentment, and certainly not regulation. I'm afraid of Mr. Roosevelt because I don't know what he'll do, Morgan said. He's afraid of me because he does know what I'll do, Roosevelt said. Roosevelt and Morgan were bound for conflict. Roosevelt was a new kind of president. He believed American capitalism needed a guiding hand. So did Morgan. Each assumed it should be his own. So that is an excerpt from the book that I'm going to talk to you about today, which is The Hour of Fate, Theodore Roosevelt, J.P. Morgan, and the Battle to Transform American Capitalism, and it was written by Susan Burfield. So before I jump into the book, I want to read this one-paragraph description uh, that is found on the inside flap, and it gives you a, uh, an overview of what this, the author's focus is. It said, A bullet from an anarchist gun put an end to the business-friendly presidency of William McKinley. A new chief executive bounded into the office, Theodore Roosevelt. He was convinced that as, bi bi as big business got bigger, the government had to check the influence of the wealthiest or the country would inch ever closer to collapse. By March 1902, battle lines were drawn. The government sued Northern Securities for antitrust violations. This is this huge trust, this railroad trust that Morgan put together. But as the case ramped up, the coal miners union went on strike and the anthracite pits that fueled Morgan's trains and heated the homes of Roosevelt citizens went silent. And so this next sentence is going to uh, is what makes this book so unique with millions of dollars on the line, winter bearing down and revolution in the air. It was a crisis that neither man could solve. And so that's why the book is called The Hour of Fate, because while they're in 
uh, this this huge battle over antitrust violations, they also have to cooperate with one another to make sure that the coal mines are brought back online. And I would say the benefit of reading books like this is we get insight. Not only do we see, I think you can learn a lot about somebody um, by who their enemies are. And we also get to see how several historical figures interacted with one another. This is not very different. Uh, I've read a few books for the podcast uh, that, that are similar in, in that vein. Uh, I would say number 97, Go Like Hell, talks about the war between Enzo Ferrari, Carol Shelby, and Henry Ford II. Then back on Founders number 83, I've read the book Empires of Light, which is about the, the competition and their interaction between Thomas Edison, Nikola Tesla, and George Westinghouse. And then back on Founders number 73, uh, the book Meet You in Hell, which is about the, the war between Andrew Carnegie and Henry Clay Frick. And I would consider The Hour of Fate very similar to those three other books. So before we get into the actual uh, interaction between the two main characters in the book, uh, the author dedicates an entire chapter to each one, just giving us highlights of you know their basic history, their basic biography, and some personality traits. So I want to pick up, uh, I'm going to start with Morgan first, and I'll get into Teddy. Uh, this is something I talked about heavily uh, that, uh, that I found most interesting uh, by reading The House of Morgan, which is the, the profound influence that uh, J.P.'s father, Junius, had on, his, on J.P.'s life. So it says, Morgan had trusted his father to set him on the right path and steer his career. And even when his father was overbearing, Morgan never mounted a challenge. It's very interesting because I think his father is the one person that he would defer to. And we're going to see a lot, even the way he talks to presidents. You can clearly see from the interactions he has with Theodore Roosevelt and other people in the government that he's not used to having anybody challenge him. Uh, the creator of the biggest companies the world had ever known was himself very much the creation of paternal influence. The young Morgan, once established, proved instinctively suited to the times in which he lived. That's another example of this, this recurring theme that you and I talk about over and over again, that uh, there's a certain uh, few historical figures that, had, that were in the right place at the right time with the right set of skills. Morgan definitely was, uh, fit all those criteria. It was an era of raucous, unfettered competition, chaotic capitalism that he would try to order. More about his personality, he always wanted to be the leader. Taking charge would become a lifetime impulse. One, though, that Pierpont would have to curb around his father for years. So the author just talked about, you know, control, this idea of control. Something you know about JP, he was a control freak. He was a control freak in his day-to-day -day work, but he also wanted to control large swaths of the, the, I would say, the global economy. So he says, this is a quote from him, I am never satisfied until I either do everything myself or personally supervise everything done I also want to draw your attention to, I'm not sure if J.P. Morgan even liked what he did for a living, which was very, very surprising. Because uh, if you love what you do, um, how many times are you going to try to quit? And, and the career of J.P. Morgan is him trying to quit over and over again and his father not letting him. Uh, this is an example of that. Pierpont grew weary. He was so strained by his dealmaking and worn out by his perfectionism that he wanted to retire at age 33. He works to uh, as a banker. Till, till the day he dies. I think he died at 75, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, last sentence in this paragraph. His father refused to let him. So before we get to the coal strike uh, that is happening in 1902, uh, the author gives us several examples, um, which are, you know, in every single biography, if you read about late 1800s, early 1900s, um, it just is an illustration. Uh, so in this case, they're talking about a, um, 
a strike that's happening uh, due to poor working conditions all the way back in 1877. But really, this section, as I read this to you, I just it's just a reminder that history doesn't repeat, that human nature does. And the same things play out over and over again. The character, cast of characters is different. Uh, but he, the the way we, uh, as a species, react to the same stimuli just appears over and over again. And that's kind of obvious, even if you have like a cursory reading of history. So as an example of that, this is one of the workers meeting with... Uh, one of the governors talking about what they want. He says, bread is what we are after. And sir, we have not, en- we have not had enough to keep our families from suffering. So anytime that happens, what's going to happen? Uh, violence. Strikes are usually, are almost always resolved with violence. The military moved into the city, subdued the streets, and took control of the railroads and the mines. So this is going to play out again, twenty about 25 years into the future. But I wanted to bring your attention to how it was described. More than 100,000 workers around the country protested that summer of 1877. 100 were killed and 1,000 jailed. The police called it a rebellion. The government called it a riot. Later it, became to be, later it came to be known as the Great Upheaval. Back to the personality of J.P. Morgan. Uh, impatient and fast is the way to describe him. He would concentrate intensely, maybe for a few moments, maybe for more, then arrive at a decision. Dispatch instructions and move on. That focus was his genius, but it was the genius of a monarch, not a Democrat. So she's going to keep hitting that idea over and over again, this idea that he he didn't want to be accountable to the public. He wanted to be in complete control. Now, what I found interesting, though, is really the, the personalities, uh, and that's what it was uh, referenced in the, the introduction, that J.P. and Teddy Roosevelt are much more similar than they would ever care to admit. It's just they they, they were both... They had different interests, but they were willing to use a lot of the same tactics to arrive at their end goal. Um, It says uh, it was the genius of a monarch, not a Democrat. Uh, It kept him isolated, made him severe, and sometimes left him exhausted. Morgan said he could do a year's work in nine months, but not 12. His impatience could be withering. So that's a reference to that he would... Uh, every year for multiple months, uh, he would vacation. So he, he definitely lived by that idea. I'm going to do a year's work in nine months. Okay, so let's go into a little bit about Teddy Roosevelt's personality. It says he adopted his father's motto, get action. It would eventually become an apt description of his of his turbulent energy. He would become a man of extreme enthusiasms and vitality. He read with near total recall, soaked up and soaked up information from everyone. He never sat when he could stand. When provoked, he would thrust. And when he hit, he hit hard. He had a snobbish sense of morality and outsized confidence. Okay, so that's another example of what I was just talking about. That, that's a sentence that describes Theodore Roosevelt. That sentence still is equally true if you were using that sentence to describe uh, J.P. Morgan. Roosevelt was, as he liked to say, forever at it. He was a curious, he was, cur- he was a curiosity always pushing and straining and admonishing friends around him to do the same. This is a great description of him. Theodore loved to row, meaning row the boat, in the hottest sun, over the roughest waters, and in the smallest boat. He wasn't interested in commerce or money. Roosevelt decided instead to become a public man. He would bring his morality and energy to an institution he believed didn't have enough of either. He expected to change society in the ways he had learned from his father. Roosevelt promised he would obey no boss and serve no clique. And this is just some more great descriptions of his personality. Roosevelt could be affable and often imperious, certain he knew what was right and that his upbringing and education would convince others of that. Again, same 
You could say the same thing for JP. He bored into issues and people. He sponged up details. This is a friend of his describing Roosevelt. He was just he was just like a jack coming out of the box. When they attacked him, he would fire back with all the venom imaginable. This is maybe the greatest single sentence describing uh, Theodore Roosevelt in the entire book. He was the most indiscreet guy I ever met. That kind of personality, uh, especially when he was young and had that kind of personality, uh, did not do very well in his early political career. Here's a description of that from Teddy Roosevelt. I rose like a rocket, he said, but it didn't take long, uh, though, before he sputtered. Roosevelt was unskilled at creating alliances. He shouted and paced the aisles. He harangued. I would listen to no argument, no advice. I took the isolated peak on every issue, and my people left me. But he obviously learns from, from this mistake. It says, later on he would learn to compromise, which he called being practical, and to work with men as they were. Quote from Roosevelt, I turned in to help them, and they turned to and gave me a hand. And so we were able to get things done. And I think something else uh, that's useful um, to understand the mindset of uh, Teddy Roosevelt is he experienced one of the greatest tragedies anybody could ever um, experience. His mother and his wife die on the same day. So it says at three in the morning, uh, his mother, 48 years old, died of acute typhoid fever. Alice, that's his wife, she was giving birth to uh, his child. Alice died less than 12 hours later. She was 22. Theodore drew a big black X on the page of, uh, on that page in his diary and wrote, The light has gone out of my life. And it's interesting to note how he deals with uh, this tragedy. He goes out into the wilderness. A huge part of uh, Teddy Roosevelt's life is his love of nature. So it says, The Dakota Badlands, a curious, forbidding wonder of time-worn rocks and water, held the last grassy, grassy stretches of a vanishing frontier. It was there that Roosevelt uh, retreated in the summer of 1884. He needed its bleak expanses and raw physical tests of endurance to chase away the depression bearing down on him. And this is why uh, he describes why he constantly stays in motion, especially in times of high stress and, and depression. Black care rarely sits behind a rider whose pace is fast enough, he wrote. He built a house, bought several thousand cattle, and became a rancher. Uh, the Northern Pacific Railroad cut through this territory and, to encourage business, promoted the creation of a new beef industry beyond the Texan plains. Roosevelt wrangled horses and herded cows. He slept outside, hunted bears, bucks, and rabbits. He killed for food and sport and trophies, and the bloody thrill of pursuit helped blot out his despair. Social conventions were scarcely observed, personal histories left unspoken. Now, this is a crazy sentence. Think about this and how just deep and dark his feelings have to be. Roosevelt later wrote that he practiced the diplomacy of the Badlands, not uttering one word that could be avoided. Okay, so now let's get into what they're fighting over. Um, and this is a reminder uh, what you and I also learned on Founders Number 139. J.P. Morgan does not want competition. He wants cooperation and he wants control. And we see uh, part of doing this is a lot of railroads are going through financial trouble at the time, and he's reorganizing them, and he's he's essentially building an unofficial trust here. And this is what 
this is the precursor to to the Northern Securities Trust that uh, Roosevelt is eventually going to put the full force of the federal government behind trying to break up. And that's what a uh, large part of what the story's about. So it says Morgan couldn't let business rivalries bankrupt an industry so essential to the nation's promise and to his position in the financial world. He decided to establish his own commission. That's a funny word. <laughs> He's basically it's 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 a trust. Uh, to encourage the railroad men to cooperate instead of compete. He wanted to fix prices, spread profits, and ensure dividends. So he's having uh, all these uh, different owners of different railroads throughout the country meet at his house. And he says, the purpose of this meeting is to cause the members of this association to no longer take the law into their own hands. A lot of these people are competing with each other uh, when they suspect they have been wronged. No more rebates. No more secret packs. No more scalping tickets. When one gentleman complained later about Morgan's interference in their road, this is a, the most important part of this section. Uh, so when he's complaining about Morgan's interference in the road, Morgan snapped, your roads, your roads belong to my clients. Not, uh, not all of them, meaning all the railroads, however. The Burlington remained independent and able to pay its own way. And so that's one of the railroads that he's going to roll up in this trust, this Northern Securities Trust. The, this agreement wouldn't last. The railroad men were too quarrelsome and suspicious and essentially too competitive to cooperate. So the reason I want to bring that back up, too, is because that's something that, after several examples of that in the book The House of Morgan, it finally clicked to my mind where I'm like, Wow. He, if you're, if you're, you have a well-run business and you're financially strong, Morgan's of no use to you. Morgan, it's a reminder that Morgan drew his power from poorly run businesses. And I think a lesson from history that is playing out on the pages that I hold in my hand is that the strong rule the weak, but the wise rule the strong. And I think uh, the Burlington is one example of this. James J. Hill who's a major character in this book. Uh, you'll remember I spoke to you about James J. Hill on Founders Number 96 in his biography. Um, James J. Hill was one of the few railroad men in the country that didn't need Morgan because he had a profitable, uh, well-run railroad where the vast majority of the people that ran railroads at this time in history went bankrupt. They, they saddled on debt. Uh, they, a lot of them were investors. They were very far away from the action. James J. Hill, if you haven't listened to that podcast, you should go back and, um, and uh, listen to it. I actually found out, I didn't know who he was. I was reading all of um, all this, all these books and the shareholder letters from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, and they, they constantly talk about operators they most admired, a lot of them being historical figures. And James J. Hill was one of the people they, they mentioned um, as an operator in a historical context that they, they greatly admired because he, he was where the action was. He was constantly... Uh, out on the front lines of the business, watching where the money was spent, making sure that the business was being run correctly as opposed to, you know, people 2,000 or 3,000 miles away. Okay, so let's move uh, real quick. Uh, oh, the note I left myself. I don't know if I said this already, but financial strength is kryptonite to Morgan. So that's a that's a good way to, to realize um, where JP is, is finding these advantages and why so many people have to listen to him because they're in bad financial positions and he's the one that has the money that rounds up the investors that, that bail these guys out and reorganize them. All right, but trust had come to represent everything skeptical. Now we're talking about historical context of why this is a problem at this point in time. Remember, this is the, the modus operandi. This is the, the, the default mode you know, for maybe 100 years prior to this point in history that's just now changing. That's why that's why a lot of what is about to transpire surprises J.P. Morgan. So it says, Trust had come to represent everything skeptical, restless Americans feared about the influence of Wall Street, concentrated power, and income inequality. John D. Rockefeller said his company was efficient. Critics said it was untouchable. And so that's the problem. 
uh, you might think, yeah, I'm, you you might be thinking, okay, I'm making my business more efficient, like Rockefeller thought, like Morgan thought. But the public says you have an unfair advantage and no one can compete with you. So what happens is the this very famous uh, law, the Sherman Antitrust Act, is uh, passed. Now, this is really surprising to me. You, you probably know what a holding company is, right? This is why holding companies were invented. I didn't know this until I read this book. Uh, but it says, even as antitrust laws won support throughout the country, clever minds were hard at work devising ways around them. So the the holding company was an invention uh, in the state of New Jersey. The state could pass a sweeping law permitting one corporation to hold the stock of another. That at the time, now this is obviously something like that that is legal, um, but at the time that was considered a conflict of interest. That says New Jersey conjured the holding company into existence, a feat for which critics dubbed it a traitor state. So you have all these different people, Morgan being one of them, setting up these holding companies uh, in New Jersey as a way to get around a lot of the antitrust laws. Okay, so to set up this Northern Securities Trust, Morgan has to start working with James J. Hill and other people. Everybody's going after one of the only profitable railroads, the Burlington, um, outside of what uh, of Hill's Railroad. Um, so let me just introduce you to all these different characters that are important to the story. A hard, as hard-up uh, railroads were forced to reckon with their many deficiencies in the 1890s, the Burlington continued to prosper. It hadn't gone into debt-building lines that went from nowhere to nowhere or went from somewhere that people could already travel to. So there, that's a really quick sentence uh, describing you know, the, the silliness of a lot of the people running railroads, which I covered in, uh, in greater length in Founders Number 96. Uh, so it says, uh, The company maintained its tracks and locomotives. It didn't need to be Morganized, but Morgan wanted it, and so did two rival railroad barons, James J. Hill and Edward H. Harriman. Before I go back into Hill, I want to grab uh, the House of Morgan one second. And when I read this book, I talked about how I didn't really find J.P.'s son that interesting, and that I'd rather read stories about this uh, this guy, E.H. Harriman. Um, so let me read that paragraph about E.H. Harriman um, because he's an important character in the hour of fate. Uh, like many on Wall Street, he was the son of a poor clergyman and an unabashed social climber, a crack shot. He had a taste for blood sport and played tough on the stock exchange as well. Where Pierpont preferred backroom deals sealed with a handshake, Harriman was a market operator. This is important because this is how the, the, him being a market operator is, is uh, the strategy he's going to use to go to war with J.P. Morgan before they eventually collaborate, but before that they go to war. Uh, more a raider than a dealmaker. When Pierpont, where Pierpont usually serves as proxy for bondholders, Harriman preferred to buy common stock and exert direct control, which is exactly what he does on some of the railroads that uh, Morgan had control over. Finally, where Morgan was the establishment figure, Harriman was the embittered outsider who showed the damage that could be done by a bright man barred from Pierpont's club. So he grew up poor. JP grew up rich. You know, kind of looked down on 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 the social climbers like like E.H. Harriman. If bankers proved they could dominate companies through voting trusts and other devices, Harriman showed that the stock raider could dominate both the bankers and their companies. Okay, so back to the hour of fate. Um, so Morgan wanted this railroad, and as did two rival railroad barons, James J. Hill and Edward H. Harriman. Hill had built the Great Northern. Listen to this. This is such a great description. It's only a few words. It's such a great description of Hill. With deliberate thrift and brutal efficiency. His railroad would become among the most profitable in the Northwest. He didn't need Morgan the way other railroad executives did. So I'm going to keep hounding on that idea that's very important because it applies to so many other domains. 
if you're in a shitty financial position, other people are going to take advantage of that. So you want to avoid that at, at, all, at all costs. Okay, so while JP, uh, Hill, and Harriman are all fighting it out before they eventually collude, um, at the same time, Teddy Roosevelt is dedicating himself to public service. Uh, the book goes through a lot of these positions. I'm just going to list off some of the jobs he had before he was vice president. Uh, he was a member of the New York State Assembly. He was president of the New York City Board of Police Commissioners. He was assistant secretary of the Navy. Then he was the governor of New York and then eventually the vice president. And of course, when McKinley is assassinated, uh, he becomes the president. Okay, so you get an idea of why they're going to be destined to class because we Theodore courted, he was the opposite of Morgan in the sense that he used the press as his ally. Morgan avoided the press. Um, and so this in the press, there's a lot of reports on his political beliefs and what he's trying to accomplish. This also, I think, is very smart strategy that Theodore Roosevelt had. When he f- uh, goes for re-election, it was a landslide. Um, and a lot of that is because even the, the Republican Party at the time didn't really want him to to run again. But he was so popular with the public, because large part because he spoke directly to them through the press, um, that they couldn't find any way they could beat him. But before we get to that point, we see, I'm just going to throw you some highlights here. It uh, gives you an idea of what was important to him. So it says, his political pronouncements became more forceful. Direct quote from him. There is not in the world a more ignoble character than the mere money-getting American, insensible to every duty, regardless of every principle, bent only on amassing a fortune. These men are equally careless of the working man whom they oppress and of the state whose existence they imperil. Uh, I don't know if you know this. A lot of people are surprised. Teddy Roosevelt was a was an author. He wrote several different books. Uh, I'll go into more. What I one of the things I most admire about him is he was a voracious reader uh, at paces that I could even never even match. And I'll go into more of that in a little bit. Um, but he's also you can tell from his speeches. I, I, I'm sure he had help writing this as well. But he was he's got a lot of these great lines uh, spread throughout his public uh, addresses. Um, and I think part of that uh, is the fact that, you know, he'd spent so much time writing. Before I get to another one of his great lines, uh, I really, you, you, you see, um, you really see like his philosophy in life. Uh, he says, a soft, easy life is not worth living. If it impairs the fiber of brain and the heart and the muscle, we must dare to be great. So back to his public pronouncements, his aim, he he wrote later, was to break down the secrecy that allowed the invisible empire of politicians and high capitalists to thrive. Roosevelt signed bills that promised stricter regulation of working conditions, gave factory inspectors more authority and resources, and restricted state employees' labor to eight hours a day. That's what he's doing right before. He's the governor of New York. Uh, That's what he's doing right before he's, he's the vice president. Um, one thing I found most interesting is that Teddy did not want to be vice president. So this is a little bit about that. Roosevelt hoped he would have a second term as governor to make good on these promises. Um, then you have a lot of these like secondary characters in the book. Um, they're they're like the highest ranking members of political parties, even if they don't happen to have. In some cases, they have political office of their own. In some cases, they just have influence because they're able to raise, they're able to organize and raise funds for for the um, for the politicians, and all of them. Roosevelt interacts with a bunch of them. All of them complain about their lack of ability to control Roosevelt. They call him a damn cowboy. It's an example of that. Platt recognized the limits of his control over Roosevelt. I can't do what I want with him. He is willful as hell. 
When Vice President Garrett Hobart died in November 1899, Platt saw a chance to remove the governor who had become a liability and a threat. And a lot of the pressure that these uh, these fixers have are coming from their donors. They're so like, hey, this guy's out here giving speeches about getting rid of, you know, the 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 allegiance between high capitalists and government. He, you know, he's a he's a problem. Morgan being one of these people, he pushed Roosevelt as McKinley's running mate for the 1900 campaign. So they didn't realize that McKinley's going to die and he's going to now have more power. So it kind of backfires. Um, and so this is what Roosevelt's saying about this point in his life. All the big moneyed interests that make campaign contributions of large size feel that I sh- and feel they should have favors in return are extremely anxious to get me out of this state, meaning New York. He called the vice presidency an irksome, wearisome place where I could do nothing and told Platt he would rather be a professor of history. Okay, so while this is all going on in Roosevelt's life, let's go back to what's happening in J.P. Morgan's life. And this is where uh, Hill, Harriman, and Morgan are, are at war. Um, so it says, uh, as they finished their meal, Harriman and Schiff showed up. Hill again turned down Harriman's offer. Uh, Harriman wants to buy the Burlington. And Harriman again threatened to retaliate. Now, this is we give an idea, the insight uh, into Harriman's personality. Remember, you know, he wasn't really... Hill came up very similar to Harriman, but Morgan, uh, you know, had a disdain for, for Harriman and other people like him, but Harriman didn't, really didn't care. <laughs> this is how he talks to these people. Very well, then. This is an invasion of Union Pacific Territory, which is a, which is a railroad that he controlled at the time, and a hostile act... And you will have to take the consequences. So what they do is while Hill is out working on his railroad and Morgan is traveling through Europe, uh, Harriman's like, okay, I'm going to go. This is the note I left myself was this is very surprising. He's going to go and, and buy stock in the railroads Morgan controlled. And this is what I mean by this was very surprising because this gives you an insight to how Morgan is just not used to people even uh going after his his uh, control or his power at all. So it says, Harriman secretly bought up shares in Northern Pacific. This was their revenge. Hill and Morgan had effective control over the Northern, Northern Pacific, but they didn't own a majority of the shares. Wasn't that, isn't that crazy? They were so powerful, they didn't have to own all the shares. They didn't have to legally have control. You just They just knew who actually had control. So it says, that was com- this is the surprising part, that was common practice among railroad executives and their bankers. And Morgan in particular had never found it necessary to own a company outright in order to exert influence. No one around Morgan, and certainly not the man himself, believed a raid on a Morgan company in the open market would succeed. They couldn't imagine who would dare. Harriman dared. Okay, so I brought that up to you because this is this act by Harriman had to happen in order to him for him to be included in this trust. So eventually they work out a deal after a lot of negotiations. Harriman agrees to surrender the proxies so that way Morgan can actually have control. He sends them by mail um, to J.P. Morgan, and in a, like a twist of history, it says uh, these, meaning the proxies, were the secret contents of the package. Morgan received on the morning of Friday, September 6th, the day President McKinley was shot. 
Uh, so it says he directed a holding company, going back to what was this uh, the invention in New Jersey to get around the Sherman antitrust laws. And this is what the fight is going to be with uh, Teddy Roosevelt over. Uh, he, he directed a holding company, Northern Securities, be formed for the stock of the Northern Pacific, Great Northern, and Burlington Line. So they're rolling up control of all these different railroads. Morgan brushed off concerns that the new company might violate antitrust laws. And the reason he did that is because, yeah, that's nice that the politicians wrote some words down on the paper, but law doesn't really apply to me, so I don't have anything to worry about. He was wrong on that account. At this point in the story, Roosevelt's in the White House. There's a few uh, details I found interesting about uh, his first few years in the, the White House. It says Roosevelt consumed nearly a gallon of coffee a day. I drink a lot of espresso, but certainly not a gallon of coffee. That's crazy. The Roosevelts lived in middle-class simplicity. The household was boisterous, and Roosevelt caffeinated, exclaiming, exclaiming, often com- completing other sentences, was the most animated of them all. He commanded the table and the room. Sounds like JP, doesn't it? Uh, when he had visitors, in the, he, he welcomed visitors to the White House. He gave each a handshake, a welcome, and an abrupt reminder to skip any formality. Sounds like Morgan. No compliments either, or they would hear. Never mind that, come to the point. If he had a spare moment, he turned to a book. Rarely did he keep still. Uh, something also to know about this is, uh, th- I, I skipped over, so obviously I have to skip over large parts of Teddy Roosevelt's life. Uh, I think I will read a biography of his, like dedicated just to his life in the future. Um, but he was already, at this point, he was already a war hero. That, that That's part of what made him so popular um, when he took the Rough Riders and, and fought down in Cuba. Um, and he kind of had that, uh, that mentality, even when he's president. Um, so, you know, at this point, I think there was four, three or four presidents shot within the last like 25 years, uh, when McKinley was shot. And so they were very, Roosevelt would always want to leave the white house and go ride horses, go out into the nature. And they were always very concerned about his safety, but it says Roosevelt protested that he didn't need bodyguards because he carried his own revolver. (laughs) Imagine that happening today. He trained with wrestlers, boxers, and jujitsu masters, and often shared amused accounts of his mishaps. Swollen bruises, bloody gashes, sopping wet and muddy clothes, stiff and sore limbs. And during his first State of the Union address, we really get a view of what he wants, and then I'm going to compare and contrast that to J.B. Morgan's view of the same exact issue. Uh, The old law, this is now direct from, from Roosevelt. The old laws and old customs which had almost binding force of law, were once quite sufficient to regulate the accumulation and distribution of wealth. Since the industrial changes, which have so enormously increased the productive power of mankind, they are no longer sufficient. So he winds up being correct about that. He's correct about that too soon in some degree, because at this point, the executive power in, uh, in the United States is extremely weak. And so there's constant examples of Teddy doing something with presidential power that had never been done before and people not sure that it would actually hold up. So there's a lot of the ideas and laws that he wanted to put in action that had to be uh, that had to be argued all the way in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, going back to the speech, though, uh, the national government should assume the power of regulation and supervision over the trusts. It has in practice proved impossible to get adequate regulation through state action. Trusts didn't confine their business to a single state. They operated across boundaries, and they and often they didn't operate at all in the state which in which they were chartered in, in which they were chartered. Uh, Roosevelt promised the working class and single to big business that the government would not be a spectator in the new economy. So this that one sentence is exactly what Morgan objects to. 
And so Roosevelt has the Department of Justice prosecute Northern Securities. And this is where we see Morgan's view. Again, this is a change in the, in the relationship between presidents and, uh, you know, some of the richest, most successful business people in the country. The president had asked his attorney general to prosecute Northern Securities for violating the Sherman Act. Roosevelt should have warned him, Morgan grumbled. They could have worked it out in a deal in private. Presidents didn't keep secrets from the captains of industry. And the House of Morgan had never before been surprised by the White House. Morgan traded in confidences and negotiated on shared assumptions. He couldn't do this to Roosevelt. That's why they're destined to fight. He had considered Roosevelt a gentleman. Now he called the president a lunatic. Roosevelt had changed the rules on the sly. And Morgan would never forgive him. So now he just go after Morgan. But as a byproduct of this, he's also going after James J. Hill. And so we, in this section, we see James J. Hill and Roosevelt go at it. Uh, and he threatened the president. This, the way they talk to, the, to, to Roosevelt's very, I mean, I'm sure this is how they talk to everybody. And he threatened the president and attorney general that if they do fight, they will have their hands full. This is Hill. And will wish they had never been born when I get through. The president has some choice words for Hill expressed privately. He detests me, but I admire him, Roosevelt said. He will detest me much more. Before I am done with him, I think that's why I find books like these so so fascinating to read, because we see you know extremely strong, extremely intelligent, extremely driven individuals, uh, but have a conflict of interests. And this you know these books are fun to read because it's like how is this going to? What's the outcome? Like how what is happening here? And there's even a lot of surprising points. Uh, like I'm not not done describing the fight over Northern Securities, which Roosevelt wins. Um, but even during this, like how much cooperation they have to have, they're still meeting. Sometimes they have dinner. Later on, Morgan uh, grudgingly donates, I think, $100,000 to Roosevelt's reelection campaign. So this is not I, – I don't want to paint it like it's all black and white. It's not that at all. It's just they, they constantly – they dis, dislike each other, but they know that they have to – there is a element of pragmatism where they have to, to cooperate when their interests are aligned, even if that aligned interest is temporary. Um, so this part of the book, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Morgan have a meeting, and I just want to give you <laughs> the description um, uh, after the meeting, what happens. And the note I left myself is, JP is used to being in control. Teddy is taken aback at his lack of respect for the presidency. After Morgan left, Roosevelt marveled at the financier's imprudence. That is the most illuminating illustration of the Wall Street point of view, he said. Mr. Morgan could not help regarding me as a big rival operator who either intended to ruin all his interests or else could be induced to come to an agreement to ruin none. Okay, so at the same exact time this is happening, there's a massive uh, coal miner strike. It's like 147,000 coal miners are striking at this point. There's just one sentence uh, before I tell you Roosevelt's response to this and why he wants this resolved. There's one sentence. It's it's really a conversation between the union and the management. Um, so the sentence refers is about management unions, but it also could be a description about the battle between Teddy and JP. And it says there cannot be two masters in the management of business. So that is the owner of the coal mines, one of them, talking to why they're not um, why they're they're refusing to um, to acknowledge. Uh, the demands by the union. Okay, so this is why Roosevelt wants the, the coal strike to end. Roosevelt worried about a winter of misery, of sickness, starvation, and darkness. And that 
would have been the outcome. People might freeze to death. Others could riot. And this is a great sentence. He understood how panic could outrun reality. Lawlessness would demand force. He wouldn't take the chance of it leading to social upheaval. If other workers went on strike too, the nation could face a crisis that he feared could be almost as serious as the Civil War. So much suddenly seemed fragile. So you may be asking, okay, why, why does Roosevelt need Morgan? Um, Roosevelt calls in the union leader and all of the executives and owners of the coal mines that are currently being uh, that are currently on strike and tries to broker a deal. But again, he has limited executive power to do so. And one of the things he's thinking about doing at this point, uh, which he doesn't know if he legally can, is, you know, if people are going to die because you, you, you guys can't come to some kind of agreement uh, and we need coal to run railroads, there's schools being closed at the time. It's, it's just so it's crazy how important um, this resource was that he's, you know, he's thinking about nationalizing the coal mines. But the executives come in and they have the very similar opinion to J.P. Morgan where, you know, they essentially tell them, mind your own damn business. This is between us and our workers and we're not listening to you. And that's where Teddy realizes that Morgan actually has more power than he does in this situation. And why is that? Because Morgan has financed a lot of these coal mines. And so the coal miners try to pull the same thing with Morgan when they meet with him. And they're like, uh, you know, he, before the, he, they would say, hey, Morgan, I thought you were hands off. He's like, I am he, uh, I am hands off, but you guys haven't come to a resolution. And they're like, they tried to use the same um, line of uh, communication with Morgan as they did with Roosevelt. And they're, they're like, well, let us uh, manage our minds the way we see fit. And he says the same thing. Your minds, they're not your minds. They're owned by my investors. So he winds up brokering. Uh, with the help of Teddy Roosevelt, while they're in the middle of this this battle with the Northern Securities Antitrust lawsuit, it's called the Corsair Agreement. Um, and Morgan and Rose, working with Roosevelt are the ones that actually get the strike resolved. But during this time, I, what I found interesting is um, Roosevelt's extremely stressed. He's got all these crazy injuries. He keeps getting in accidents because he's just a wild, you know, that uh, the way they describe him, the damn cowboy. That's probably a good description. He winds up getting into some kind of like uh, accident with his horse-drawn carriage, falls out. They think maybe his, his bone and his leg is infected. So it says, Roosevelt anxiously considered his options. Usually when he needed to distract himself, he rode hard and tramped miles. Anything to sweat and strain. That's, that's very similar to uh, this, this, this emphasis that's put on uh, vigorous exercise as a way to relieve stress. Um, when I read the autobiography of Nelson Mandela, he would do the same thing. He would do boxing and all kinds of physical activity to try to help uh, relieve, you know, the um, the stresses his mind was experiencing. Uh, so he he turned to his other favorite activity, reading, and he asked the Librarian of Congress to select books from him, or for him. So it says later that evening, Morgan committed a surprising act of diplomacy. He presented the Corsair Agreement to Roosevelt in person. Roosevelt still believed that Manhattan was the country's most, quote, troublesome, insular possession. Yet they set aside their mutual suspicion and antagonism to cooperate as the country faced the potential devastation of a winter without coal. And it was this agreement. There's, there's a lot of more back and forth I'm going to skip over, but I'm going to give you the punchline here. Um, it's this agreement that wind up getting the coal, the coal miners back to work. Um, but I want to talk about the Roosevelt's reaction after this happened. Uh, he made clear his gratitude to Morgan. My dear sir, Roosevelt wrote in a letter, let me thank you for the service you have rendered the whole people. 
If it had not been for you and your going into the matter, I do not see how the strike could have been settled at this time. And the consequences that might have followed upon uh, it being unsettled when cold weather set in are in very fact dreadful to contemplate. I thank you and congratulate you with all of my heart. Morgan never sent a reply. (laughs) The men went back to the anthracite mines on October 23rd. The strike had lasted 164 days. It cost $30,000 a day to keep the the National Guard in the field. It cost the mines and the railroads some $74 million and their public standing. It cost the miners $25 million in lost wages. And that's just, I'm bringing this up just to illustrate that, you know, where, how, when you have two stubborn sides that are both dug in, um, you know, they could have reached an agreement that would have undoubtedly cost a lot less on both sides, and they refused to. And I think that's a good lesson. Uh, it says the Arbitration Commission uh, met at the White House on October 24th and began its work soon afterward. It would set conditions for the 147,000 miners to produce one of the nation's most vital commodities for the next three years through the 1904 presidential election, which is really, really important to Roosevelt. So after this, uh, the court comes out, says, yes, Northern Securities is illegal. Uh, they challenge, Hill and Morgan challenge it in the Supreme Court. Um, the, the, what I found fascinating is at the time, if you were a justice on the Supreme Court, you were paid $12,000 a year. The, the attorney that Morgan and Hill hired had turned down a post twice to, be a, to have a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court um, because his, his law firm was so lucrative Hill and Morgan paid him $500,000 just for that trial. So with the successful resolution of the coal strike and Roosevelt uh, following through on his promises to, to hold the richest people in the, the country as accountable to the law as you know the poorest person, uh, he becomes incredibly popular. Uh, he goes out at this point in the story, he goes out on a nine-week tour of the country to speak directly to this is before right before the campaign starts and this one sentence was really interesting gives you an idea of how voracious a reader that teddy roosevelt was in between stops on this nine-week trip he uh, he read the 40 books he ordered for the trip so more than a little bit more than four books a week he was going through so once the northern securities trust was broken up uh we realized hill and morgan just really a marriage of convenience. They didn't actually like each other too much. They had never been fond of one another. Hill was explosive, Morgan glacial. Theirs was a partnership of convenience that had become unexpectedly inconvenient. Now, there is part of me that it remains a little bit skeptical um, of the actual outcome, like the permanence of this outcome, because even though the, the individual companies couldn't be put into a trust and had to be dissolved... Morgan and Hill and Harriman and all the other investors still owned whatever percent of the stocks they owned and controlled whatever they did in each of the companies. And so after this, this is where you see Hill starts financing a a different candidate to take on Roosevelt. That guy, his name's Parker. He winds up losing. But Morgan doesn't. Um, And he donates to, you know, Roosevelt and some other people. So, So I'm not entirely sure how much of this was because they could still collude privately they just couldn't be wrapped up into a holding company right but there is really nothing um as long as they don't put it in writing to stop them from cooperating in a way that you know would violate the spirit of the antitrust law 
And the reason I bring that up is because I always think like when you're trying to figure out what's actually happening as opposed to what you're being told is happening is you ask who benefits. And Roosevelt undoubtedly benefited from this because this one line, it says people loved him for the enemies he has made. And so he's undoubtedly getting a lot of votes from people that, you know, are sick and tired of the Morgans of the world. Um, But at the same time, Morgan may have a personal dislike for Roosevelt, but it doesn't stop him from being pragmatic and by contributing and making sure he still has influence. And so several years later, during the Panic of 1907, um, they have to work together in some capacity. I would say Morgan's obviously taking the lead here because this is his domain. Um, but we, we see that their association is not over, even though Morgan's life is over, almost over. So this is about the, the way that Morgan... The last time he essentially saved the country from a financial panic and really talks about, you know, this is a few years after the antitrust uh, uh, lawsuit, you know, he still has an extensive amount of power. And so it says, and Morgan, 70 70 years old, was still commanding. No one could leave. He has this tactic where, um, especially in these times where they have to get an answer right away, he'll, he'll just lock everybody in the room with them and says, my keys in my pocket, we're not leaving until this is done. So he does the same thing here. Uh, He says, no one could leave until he allowed them to. He had locked the library's uh, doors and put the key in his pocket. The financial system was in crisis. Trust companies, essentially unsupervised banks, were failing, and they were threatening other institutions on their way down. The the fearful, and there were many of them, were rushing to withdraw their savings. Morgan had raised money to help, and the government had contributed funds, but it wasn't enough. The men in the study had to prevent chaos. Wall Street had blamed Roosevelt's stance toward business for undermining undermining confidence in the first place. In response, the president turned the taunt back on Wall Street. It may well be the determination of the government to uh, to punish certain malefactors of great wealth had been responsible for something of the trouble. If only, he said, because those he had provoked would risk turmoil turmoil to discredit to discredit him. At four fourteen at four fifteen in the morning. On that Sunday, November 3rd, Morgan presented a statement that committed each of the trust company presidents, this is actual like banking trusts, not the same thing as the trust he was setting up to control coal and railroads and everything else, uh, company presidents to providing a share of the $25 million rescue loan. There you are, gentlemen, he said. Then he, gest- uh, then he gestured as their unofficial leader. There's the place and here's the pen. Uh, the others signed the document, and Morgan unlocked the door at 4.45 in the morning. The panic subsided. People first praised Morgan for this stark display of power and then condemned him for it. Roosevelt was criticized for allowing Morgan to profit from it. But the bailout would be one of the last times Morgan would ever exert his influence so publicly. Over the following years, he worked on a system to regulate, regu- regulate the money supply, but he worked in private. And though he still loomed in the national imagination, he was even more clearly a man out of his time. As 1908 was drawing to a close, Morgan declined to speak at a dinner in his honor. Money talks, but Morgan doesn't, was the headline in the Chicago paper the next day. But he did talk to friends that evening, and they were happy to repeat to the New York Times the advice Morgan said he had received from his father long ago. This direct quote from Morgan. There may be times when things are dark and cloudy in America, when uncertainty will cause some to distrust and others to think there's too much production, too much building of railroads, and too much development in other enterprises. 
in such times and at all times, remember that the growth of that vast country will take care of it all. Years after Morgan first heard those words, and despite much evidence to the contrary, he still believed them. And that is where I'll leave it. If you buy the book using the, sh- the link that's in the show notes, you'll be supporting the podcast at the very same time. That's 142 books down, 1,000 to go. And I'll talk to you again soon.